What's up, my friends? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way, from professional big wave surfers to environmental thought leaders to documentary filmmakers and beyond. One of the many hats that I wear is as a cameraman. And recently I was hired to film a medical training video down in Costa Rica. And the training video happened to be um, taking place at a medical center called Rhythmia. Rhythmia is the only licensed ayahuasca treatment center in the world. For those of you who have no idea what ayahuasca is, it is a powerful psychedelic that was originally found in the Amazon rainforest, and when used correctly, is highly effective in helping people move through trauma. When we were finished filming, I had the opportunity to participate in my first ayahuasca ceremony, and it's the real deal, guys. For those of you who listen to this podcast, I hope that you agree that my bullshit meter is well calibrated, and I can tell you that it was one of the most profound experiences of my life, and it unveiled an inner landscape for me that I believe is worth exploring. And I think that ayahuasca can help people in ways where conventional treatments fall short. So I'm willing to talk about it here. And I hope that you'll agree that I did it in a responsible way. And I did it with the perfect person. My guest today is Dr. Jeff McNary. Dr. McNary has worked in the healthcare field for over 25 years in a variety of medical environments. He's the former director of Passages, which is a world-renowned drug and alcohol rehabilitation center in Malibu, and he now works as the head doctor at Rhythmia. In this conversation, we not only talk about ayahuasca and other psychedelics, we also dig into the current medical system. And... Jeff breaks down uh, and has great insight into the inner workings and the process in which pharmaceuticals make their way into your hands. I recorded three conversations while I was in Costa Rica. The first is with Dr. Jeff McNary. The second is with the founder of Rhythmia, Jerry Powell. And the third is with Nicole Ragger, who is one of the facilitators and each interview is um, vastly different and all very high quality. So keep an eye out for those in the coming days. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute honor to introduce my guest today, Dr. Jeff McNary. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. For people who have no experience with ayahuasca, what is it? Well, ayahuasca is what we call a plant medicine, and it's a, a very ancient indigenous remedy for a lot of different ailments that people have, whether it be psychological, 
medicinal, emotional, and its uh, its its roots are originally in in Peru and also in Brazil, and there's a lot in Colombia. And it's a it's a vine. Ayahuasca is a, actually ayahuasca is a combination of two plants, but the traditional um, kind of way of thinking about ayahuasca for people, it's a vine. And that's the, the main part of the of the medicine. Okay. And then that is mixed with a leaf as well, which is the... Um, so ayahuasca, if I'm not mistaken, is the 5-MeOI inhibitor. Yeah. yeah. Ayahuasca is what's called a, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So an MAOI. There's also uh, pharmaceuticals that are MAOIs. So there's a lot of substances that, are, that we're using you know, in modern day, they're MAOIs and, and ayahuasca vine is one of those. And that the MAOI allows your body to absorb the, the DMT without being broken down by your digestive system. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, so what happens is regionally, uh, there needs to be a plant that has a high content of, uh, DMT. So it just depends what part of the world you're in. Right. So in Hawaii, they have acacia, and here in Costa Rica, we have mimosa tenaflora. In other parts of the world, there's other plants. And right. So what happens is you have to do an extraction of those two substances. So you get the vine and you do a really simple extraction. You get out the substance of the vine. That's the MAOI. Then you do another extraction with the plant of choice, depending on where you live. And you get the DMT and those go together. And you drink those as one tea. And you extract the... Um the MAOI and the DMT through boiling them together in water yeah, for long periods of time. Yeah, there's boiling involved. There's um, other really simple kind of lab procedure that you do that's really basic. So it's actually quite simple, but it involves a lot of boiling and reducing. Right. And what does it do? That's a great question. <laughs> it does a lot. <laughs> so basically what's happening when you drink this uh, this brew, right, is that the MAOI goes into the stomach, right? And it stops the enzymes in the stomach from breaking down the DMT. So the DMT can then do what it needs to do. And uh, indigenous cultures have called DMT the God molecule or the insightful molecule. And there's all these words for it. But basically DMT is the active ingredient in the medicine. And so what happens is people drink it and within about 30 to 40 minutes, um, you know, they usually are lying down or sitting up you know, with their back supported and they they start to either have visions, they start to see uh, patterns or they just relax and sometimes fall asleep. So it just really depends on the person, depends on what, what's going on with them in their life, whether it's uh, medically, you know, physical symptoms or um, psychological issues or emotional blocks. And uh, it's what, what happens is neurochemically what's going on, which is the part I love, um, being a science guy that I am, I, I studied a lot about the, the actual uh, neurochemistry that's going on. So the amygdala part of the brain is the part where we store our emotional memories. And the, the example I like to give is, let's say, you know, let's say I'm five years old and I get scared by a dog and I'm terrified and it was a scary moment and the dog was, you know, vicious and whatever. And uh, so from then on, what happened was at that moment is in my neurochemistry, I lined up a pathway of neurons that basically says dogs are scary and that gets burned into my brain really strong because it was a really scary event and that's a trauma. And so what happens is 
as uh, I go about my life and I'm no longer five, I'm 20, 30, 40 and going on, I'm still scared of dogs, but I don't really know why. And I'm kind of confused because I see that everybody else likes dogs. I want to like dogs, but I'm just inherently kind of nervous about them and I, I don't like them, let's say, right? So uh, what happens is the prefrontal cortex part of our brain, which is where a lot of our rational thinking is and our consciousness, what happens is that part of the brain, when, when you're taking ayahuasca, gets to communicate and kind of link up with the amygdala. And what happens on an ayahuasca uh, journey, as we call them, is you get to see uh, sometimes visually or sometimes just with your thoughts, you get to think about it. It depends on the person, right? Um, you see that, wait a minute, like I'm not afraid of dogs. I was actually scared at age five. That was appropriate. I'm no longer under attack by pit bulls. <laughs> I like dogs and I actually want to have one as a pet. And so what happens is the synaptic plasticity which is a, a concept in neurochemistry, right? Where the brain can adjust and change. It rebuilds a new pathway of neurons that shows that dogs are not fear. Dogs are nice. And you get to resolve the fear that was historically present when you were five. And so that's an, an example of something that happens. So basically you get to resolve trauma during ayahuasca and it's a huge deal. How is it a huge deal? You've seen a lot of people who have come in with a myriad of issues um, and you've seen them be resolved. Can you give me some examples of that? Sure. So uh, my background is in working with trauma victims, uh, mostly women and children who have been victimized also in addiction and also with uh, acute psychiatric. So with trauma in particular, uh, you know, what's going on with uh, a lot of the people I've worked with is that they have a history of, of really horrific events, whether that's abuse, uh, molestation, uh, even just the death of a lot of a loved one. Like there's all these different things, right. That can cause trauma. And so what happens is like, let's say in, uh, in abuse from childhood, what happens is a lot of people, as they become adults, they, they really struggle with, uh, having relationships. They don't trust people. Uh, sometimes their relationships are super dysfunctional. They pick the wrong uh, person to be with and it, it, it often continues the abuse. So, uh, these, these types of patients that I've worked with are, are in this ongoing cycle of just like re-victimizing themselves and being re-victimized by others. And just in this horrible, uh, kind of rotating door <laughs> of similar events. Right. So the, the traditional way to deal with someone in trauma is to have them in therapy, probably have them on a bunch of meds, um, have them go to empowerment groups, do a lot of work basically. So right off the bat, that's going to rule out a lot of people that can't afford those kinds of things or don't have access. And if they do have access, they get, they still get caught in a cycle because what traditionally goes on in groups and in, in, in patient environments and, and in therapy is, you know, it's really hard to get to a point where the patient trusts uh, the, the therapist or trusts the doctor that they're working with because they don't trust people. So they're always fearful. They're always doubtful and they have a wall basically that's they've built up since they were kids. And so, you know, to get a, a, a traditional client that I worked with to get them to a place where they could actually do some healing from trauma, it takes years. And, you know, there's meds involved, like I said, and, and there can be suicidality and there's often substance abuse. So there's a really lot of high risk behaviors that are going along with that. So what I love about ayahuasca is it helps 
remedy that type of situation very quickly. And some people can knock it out in, a, in one night, in one session. Um, others, it takes a couple more. But it, within a week or two at the max, you've really made some progress and you've been able to resolve some of the pain and the fear and you have a lot of clarity, you know? Right. Yeah. You were saying at lunch that when you were, um, remind me your title again at Passages. I was the administrative director at a rehab in Malibu called Passages. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and what did you say was um, the success rate from patients going in yeah. and returning? Well, the, the, the nationwide statistic on inpatient drug and alcohol rehabs are 12 to 15% success. And what that means is once they discharge after a 30-day period of inpatient, if you measure in one year later, if they are still sober, only about 12 to 15% are. And so that's uh, really low. And rehabs are very expensive, most of them. And uh, they're not very effective. So, So what's great about this, right, this plant medicine world that I'm in is that, uh, the, the rehabilitation of lots of issues, whether it be addiction, uh, mental health issues, um, phobias, you know, mental blocks, those kinds of things, it gets resolved immediately, which is, it's hard to believe really. Like I, I, yeah, I had a hard time actually wrapping my head around it because 25 years of, uh, being a healthcare practitioner, you know, I have a master's in public health from UCLA and I'm a, I have a doctorate in psychology. I've been working in healthcare agencies forever. Um, the, what they're telling us all the time in school, right? Is that okay, it's going to take a while. Uh, you got to use all these different modalities. Uh, you know, we can hope for the best, but really we're just trying to contain people so they don't kill themselves or they don't overdose on meds or whatever. So it's not a great outlook. Yeah. Know? That's, yeah. It seems horrible if you're passionate about what you do and you want to help people, but the reality is that it's a 12 to 15% success rate. Exactly. You've got to show up every single day and go to work knowing those numbers That's and right. knowing how low of um, a chance it is that someone's actually going to be successfully sober. Absolutely. And, and the reason for that is, you know, what's interesting is that in the addiction world, uh, most of the therapists and mental health workers in the addiction field are ex-addicts themselves. And that can be really cool, you know, because they understand the, the clients and whatever. However, there's, there's negative sides to that. Uh, often it, it creates a rigid healing environment of, well, I did it this way, so you have to do it this way. Right. It's the only way that works. And a lot of the healthcare practitioners in addiction have not really fully resolved their own issues, and so they're projecting a lot onto their patients. And so it might not be client-centered, and there right. might be a lot of, you know, it might not be appropriate for that person. So there's a lot of challenges. Right. And how did you come across ayahuasca? Uh, I worked with a, a guy named Jerry Powell. And he was uh, a guy that came into to the rehab I was managing. And uh, I wasn't seeing clients. I was the director, so I wasn't really working with any individual patients. But uh, <laughs> he was so out there and so severe with his with his issues. And he was a great dude, like super cool. But, uh, you know, he was really severe. He had a, a huge addiction to Demerol and alcohol. And his lifestyle was just madness, you know. So... I, uh, he met with me like right away. Like he walked in the door and he, and the, the staff took him to my office cause he was just, he was a wild man. <laughs> so I worked with this guy, right? I said, you know what? I'm going to take him because you know, I want to be able to focus on him. I can see he has a huge drive to uh, succeed, which is really great, but he's so, uh, extreme in his, in his, uh, history 
that I just wanted to kind of take that burden off of my staff <laughs> and uh, just work with them myself. Right. Yeah. So what happened was I met this guy, uh, Jerry Powell, and worked with him for a couple years, actually, after the rehab. And we stayed in touch and we worked together on a lot of different things. He went to uh, different spiritual centers and, you know, he tried all these different things. To, he, he, he stopped doing Demerol at the rehab, which was great, but he still had an alcohol issue and he still had a lot of uh, behavior issues with women and his family dynamic was chaotic and, you know, his friend situation was out of control. So he was still not happy. And, uh, about eight years after I met him and I was still in touch with him, he heard about plant medicine that was being offered in Costa Rica. So he just decided on a whim to go and he did it. And it, it was like the most amazing experience for him. He, he was able to see why he was so upset and why he was choosing, you know, these behaviors and why he felt so bad about himself, basically. And he called me and he's like, dude, you got to get down here. So I went the next week and he, you know, like a week after he did it and I did it. I don't have any addiction history or I'm, I'm pretty well balanced. I guess you could say I don't have too many mental health issues, right? All psychologists oh, do. Oh, we'll find out right? in this oh, podcast. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a few. <laughs> There's a few I got. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so I did the, the, the medicine and I was like, wow, I resolved so much about myself and I did inner child work right away. I was able to see why, you know, I thought I was a big tough guy, like what that was about. And I was able to really get some inner peace that I thought, wow, this is incredible. This is like 20 years of psychotherapy in one night. Would you be willing to talk about um, why you thought that and just take me through that first session? Sure. So, you know, in my schooling, it was required to um, have about 65 hours of individual psychotherapy, which is great because if you're going to be working with people on mental health, if you're a nut job, it's not going to go so well. Right. So you have to really work out your own issues. Right. So I was able to go through all of that therapy. Um, I was able to, uh, you know, work on myself. I thought, you know, a lot. And, but still there was these certain things that were just eating at me. I wasn't great at all in relationships. I was angry. I was always kind of like a, a tough dude. You know, I grew up in, in a part of Los Angeles that was, you know, you had to be tough to kind of like hang on the streets. And, and I grew up that way. And, you know, I'd seen a lot at a young age. And so my persona was this tough guy, like this big dude, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll fight you. I'll, you know, don't mess with me. And I kind of carried myself like that. But what happened was when I, when I did plant medicine is I realized, um, you know, I went back to myself as a child. I actually, you know, my eyes are closed. I had some, some blindfolds on so you can kind of sleep or, or have darkness while you're on the medicine. Right. And I saw myself as a kid and I went up to myself, you know, I was like five years old and I was like, what's wrong? You know, you look really upset. And I was talking to, to my five-year-old me. And, and at first the five-year-old me was running off and I had a little skateboard back then, you know, even then I was skating and, uh, it was just, I had to chase him down to get him to talk to me. He just, he didn't trust anybody. And I, I grabbed him. I said, I said, Jeffrey, what's going on? And I said, what, what, what's happening? What's wrong with you? And he's like, he tells me, he's like, I'm just scared. You know, I'm like, well, what are you scared of? There's these big kids down the street. They're always fighting me. There's a bar across the street with all these drunk guys. There's all these bikers cruising around and it's, I'm just scared. This is a scary neighborhood and I'm scared. That's it. So I realized like, I'm not a tough guy. That's what I had to present to the world to feel safe. I was just a scared little kid basically is what that was. Right. So 
these concepts that, that we realize on plant medicine are not necessarily uh, rocket science, but there's, they're actually very simple things. But they're very profound. They, yeah, they are. They, it, um, one thing that I've noticed is that when, when a lot of people talk about their experiences, um, the insights can almost come off as pedestrian. They're so simple. Yes. Right. But to really feel it and to have that conversation with yourself um, is something that, that is profound. I um, used ayahuasca for my first time two nights ago. And uh, the experience of having a conversation with myself um, was something so new for me on that level. I had a journal with me and I would write down a question and then my hand would write the answer. Mm-hmm. And then I would write another question and my hand would write the answer. And it was this, this conversation on a, I guess you could call it a soul level that I had not experienced before. Um, and I have experienced, I, I've, um, experimented with LSD, I've experimented with um, psilocybin mushrooms, um, and I've had great insights from it, but um, the duration and just the slow, thoughtful conversation that took place um, was something that was was really profound for me. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, it's so important because, you know, traditional talk therapy in about two to three sessions, the psychologist can figure out pretty much like what's going on with the patient generally. And the patient has usually been in lots of therapy yeah. depending on their, their severity. And it's not like there's any new information. It's like, yeah, I was abused. I have a, a crappy life. I'm not happy. And then, you know, I'm in domestic violence, whatever. And you can talk about it all day long, but until you have that, that soul connection with yourself about it, nothing's going to shift. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it, I, I think that what's, what, what was new for me was to have a conversation with a version of myself that, um, was not attached to any emotion except compassion for myself. Yeah. And it was, and it was cause I can be very hard on myself. And that was one of the insights that I had through it was just to, to just love yourself like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're never going to get there. Like I've in the past, I've always, I've had this this thing where I think that, oh, if I just get to this next level, then I'll be happier. If I attain this success, then I'll be okay with myself. And it was this conversation of, of just like myself giving myself a fucking big hug. Absolutely. That, um, I mean, it just, it might sound silly right now, but to feel it on that level, um, I really understood how it could be help so helpful for people who have addiction issues because it, it, it changes the um, the outlook or it changed the outlook on me of, of what is possible that it is possible to to feel self-love on in that way definitely um, and I, I can imagine for someone who's who's a heroin addict and doesn't think that they are deserving of love, mm-hmm. um, that could be the shift that really changes their life. Absolutely. You know, the reason I loved working with uh, addicts for so long is because they're, they're some of the most amazing people I've ever met because they're highly emotionally sensitive. And what's happened is they're coming from uh, dysfunctional, usually dysfunctional families or environments that are not attuned to them at all. And they don't have the tools to use this emotional um, openness and they get bombarded and they get pushed down and they get projected onto and they start to have this self-loathing right and so kind of the only escape for them were drugs 
And once you get the drugs out of the way, and once you get that awareness to the to the addict, things really change fast. You know, it's incredible. Yeah. So take me from um, the time that you were working at Passages to how you ended up here at Rhythmia. Okay. So uh, before a little bit before even Passages, I was running a, a UCLA OBGYN a clinic where I was doing women's health and working with women with developmental disabilities and reproductive health. And I always uh, found that the interaction with patients on an emotional mental health level was really inviting to me. So I applied to medical school. Um, I actually got into a program in California, but then uh, didn't go because I'd been managing this facility. I was seeing this in the early 90s. I was seeing that managed care was kind of basically going to lock me into some stuff that I wasn't open to. So then I moved... uh, to Hawaii, where my wife at the time was from Maui. We moved there and uh, I worked for the Department of Health for the state of Hawaii and worked with kids that were quote unquote problematic. Um, I found them to to be the opposite. I found the native Hawaiian kids that were labeled this to be actually um, not given the tools they need to succeed in their Hawaiian culture. So I worked with these Hawaiian families. It was the most amazing experience in my life. It really changed um, the way I viewed healthcare to involve a, a community approach. Mm-hmm. Tell so, me more about that. Well, what, uh, you know, what's going on in all the states, right, is that there's usually some federal programs that are attached to federal money. And with that comes the federal uh, requirements for, for uh, healthcare and how that has to go for treatment or for therapy. And I found those ways to be completely um, obsolete and not work with uh, native Hawaiian families. And I was, uh, I was involved in Hawaiian culture since I was a kid, paddling outrigger canoes most of my life and surfing and growing up like that and, you know, knowing all the big Hawaiian guys and just, you know, idolizing them, Duke Kahanamoku and all those guys and Eddie Aikau and just the amazing surfers from Hawaii, right? And uh, so what I noticed is, you know, if I approached uh, the care that I was giving these kids as their mental health therapists and, and their families in a Hawaiian way, which was about involving their family, uh, using traditional Hawaiian practices for, uh, to boost self-esteem like hula, uh, paddling, surfing, taro patch. You know, there's a lot of spirituality involved in a, in a taro patch about cultivating the taro and, uh, which, you know, they turn into poi. And so we would get these kids involved in all these, uh, cultural, endeavors that would really boost their self-esteem given up get them back to their identity right it's native hawaiians and it was amazing and uh, i ended up writing my uh, dissertation for my doctorate on on that exact topic so it was really exciting so you know uh the as uh, often happens with hawaii and other parts of the world there's a system that gets imposed upon a culture that's not appropriate it's not culturally sensitive and it fails and then the, the statistics will show all this failure and it's not accurate because it's just not being done right. Right. And they're not adopting it themselves. Exactly. And so I found great success with the families I worked with by just involving them in a way that was client centered and native Hawaiian appropriate and uh, working with them in ways that they would uh, flourish and, and get part of their you know, identity as kids you know, back. It was great. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and then, yeah, you, then, then so, I, so you were there uh-huh. and then how did it lead you down here? So then I went to, uh, I decided I wanted to get a doctorate in psychology after that because I was a master's level person at that point with my public health degree and I wanted to have more training and background to actually do therapy and work with people. So went back to California, um, 
got my doctorate, worked at a bunch of different facilities as intern. Um, and the great thing is that I got hired year one, um, to work at passages, not as a director, but as just an entry level guy working at night. And I was sitting up at these homes at night and just, you know, everybody's asleep and I'm just studying. It was a perfect job for grad student. You know, I just hang out in the living room and just read all night and write papers. Right. So, um, once the, the owners found that, uh, found out about me a little bit that I had a, this background, I was a bit older for grads for a doctorate. Most of the other students were a lot younger than me and they realized I had this kind of management background at UCLA and also the d- government work in Hawaii. They said, Hey, we want you to be the administrative director of this facility. So I was like, all right, cool. So I was in my doctorate program working at passages the whole time. And it was really cool because in my classes at school, you know, oftentimes there's the ivory tower, right? With the professors and they, they think that, you know, they're kind of removed from the real world sometimes. And they're telling us what's going on out there. And I'm like, well, that's not really what's happening. You know, I got some, I got some data because I'm running a place right now. And so it was actually, uh, for some of my professors, they either hated me or they loved me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. If they're open-minded to hearing how it really is, I'm but sure they loved you. You, you what's funny is that at the end of every class, not every class, but a lot of my classes, they'd hand me their card and say, can you hire me at passages? So <laughs> <laughs> you're like, well, it depends on what grade I'm getting in this class. That's right. That's right. And, uh, it was really funny. That's you know? funny. So, um, that's where I met Jerry. It was at passages. Yeah. And then uh, I was still doing a private practice working in Pasadena. I was going through a, a psychiatric unit, working in the locked units. So I was seeing a lot of acute mental health stuff and then uh, working with Jerry the whole time. And that's when it led to him coming down here to Costa Rica. And I followed him and I, I told him after our, our journey, I said, dude, we have to do something that's safe, that's medically licensed, that's approved by the government, that is... Uh, can actually help people get what they need out of healthcare because you know my background is like it's a dead end at all these places it's just it's a nightmare yeah so i wanted to really have a place that would be effective yeah effective and safe because the mindset and the intention going into an ayahuasca journey matters so much that's the the main thing that people um, have said to me since I've been down here is you need to write down what it is that you want to get out of this. What are the questions that you want answered? Because if you just go in like, a, yeah, we're going to drink a bunch of ayahuasca and woo, see what happens. Um, I can see it being a very frightening experience for people. And um, yeah, and it often is uh, Yeah, <laughs> for those people that don't plan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the, um, I do think that we should should talk a bit about that because um, we've been talking about how great ayahuasca is and all all that, which um, I think is warranted. But um, it is a very serious undertaking. Um, Absolutely, and it's not. And it, you know, I think that to go at it in a serious um, way, um, like you're psyching up for an athletic competition. Um, is really important. So tell me a little bit about how people, um, how you've seen the most effective change happen before um, and what can go wrong. I've seen a lot of both. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when, when people come here for, uh, for their visit with us for a week or two, I do an intake on them and I ask them, I said, have you ever done it before? And they say, nope, I've, this is my first time. Pretty much 85% of our guests is their first time. And I go, oh, why'd you choose us? And they said, well, because you're a licensed medical facility and we're actually a hospital. So the Ministry of Health of Costa Rica has licensed us and we are 
doing things in a way that is safe, medicinally dosed and appropriate spiritually based on the shamans that, you know, we work with. So we're not just, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet these days about, um, you know, shamanism being mainstream and how there, there's pros and cons to that. And some shamans are upset about it. And some people are saying it's watering down the experience. And so we're very respectful of um, the history of this medicine. We take it very seriously. Um, it's not just a medical facility. It's a, it's a spiritual center. And we're very dedicated to making it safe for people in both health wise, but also like you were mentioning spiritually and emotionally. So, you know, what happens is we, when people book their stay with us, you know, usually it's a couple months in advance, we send them a lot of information about um, how to prepare with uh, what's called a dieta, which is a way to eat that keeps the body in harmony with the medicine and prepares the body for the medicine. We also uh, don't allow obviously medications that are contraindicating such as uh, SSRIs and benzodiazepines and opiates. And there's other things that people have to be weaned off of prior to coming. They have to have a certain time off of those meds. Um, and then when they get here, there's, there's classes before they even take ayahuasca about how to set intentions, uh, what to expect, how to handle the information, and there's a ton of staff that are here to support them. And there's a lot of integration that happens afterwards. So that's why we don't have a one day retreat. The minimum people can come here for is, is seven nights, eight days. And th th that's very important to me because if we just have people popping in and out, uh, who knows what would happen on their flight home? You know, it's, it, it, they could have a meltdown it, and I'm not saying necessarily physically, but it's more about like you get scared and the preparation is super important and it's, you know, like you mentioned, you feel, you know, you got to feel safe in the environment in order to feel safe. You have to have people that are trained that are understanding the ayahuasca. You have to have medicinal people who are, you know, ancient, uh, anciently trained, I guess you could call it. Um, we have a great Taita, um, who oversees our facility and a Taita is a, is a shaman in a bloodline that comes from a family, um, in Colombia, actually his name's Taita Juanito and he's a very good shaman. He comes from a long line of, uh, ayahuasqueros. So some of the, some of the things that I've seen go wrong, um, haven't actually luckily knock on wood, uh, been here. They, <laughs> they've been things I've heard about from other facilities. And some of the things I've seen are people having, you know, freaking out, um, getting violent, uh, being super scared, um, not knowing how to handle the information they receive. If you're dealing with a severe trauma person, um, there's a lot of emotions coming up. So if you're in the jungle somewhere with no, uh, with no sort of support, yeah, it could be really rough, right? Yeah. It could get rough. I can imagine. Yeah. You're looking at tarantulas and, and scorpions and you're thinking like, I just, you know, resolved some historical trauma with my dad. And I don't know what to do with it. This mean, what does this mean? Right. And you're just way out in the middle of nowhere. Start sprinting off into the jungle naked. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It, um, so that bad stuff can happen. So how do you ensure that it doesn't happen? There's the integration beforehand. There is, um, the safety, uh, and the facilitation while they're on the journey. Absolutely. Um, and then there is the, the decompression aspect. Of well, it. a big part of, uh, making sure that things go smoothly here is that we screen everybody on the intake call when they first try to book their stay. And then I meet with every single client who comes here and I assess them quickly and I follow up with them throughout their stay. And I want to make sure if there's any sort of mental health issues, you know, what are they, what's their history, if there's trauma or addiction or any sort of other issues that could sort of escalate, 
you know, with being uncontained. So the screening process that we have is actually really key to make sure that we have a, a safe journey for people. Now, those that don't qualify, let's say, um, because maybe they're on meds. Well, we, we talk to their doctors and we help them taper off their meds if it's appropriate physically. Right. Um, we also will provide counsel to them to some degree to how to like, you know, there's, I had a patient recently call who is, has a phobia with throwing up and it's like a serious phobia. Like they get terrified not only if they're throwing up, but if other people are throwing up around them. So we referred that person to a therapist in their, in their city. And we gave them some suggestions on the type of therapy that could help with that. So when people actually get here to arrhythmia, uh, they're, they're pretty well prepared on yeah. the start, you know, but we have had some things, you know, go on here, but nothing, nothing extreme, nothing dangerous, uh, no nine one one situations. It's been more just the people are overwhelmed with, uh, the emotion of the experience. Right. So if someone is, um, let's say a heroin addict and they're still taking heroin or, um, they're depressed and they're still taking antidepressants. Um, you're saying that they're, they cannot be taking those and then take ayahuasca. So how do you get them? How do you get a, a heroin addict off so that they can even be ready for an ayahuasca experience? Yeah. And that's a tough one. And, you know, we've struggled with that because, you know, heroin addicts in order to get off heroin, usually they have to go to a detox and, um, they usually do that at a rehab or in their neighborhood where they're from, they might go to that. And, you know, we know that those are rough and, uh, not always the greatest environments, but, uh, if someone is addicted to a substance, they absolutely have to be off of it and they have to be off of it for sometimes months before we'll give them the ayahuasca. Okay. Well, yeah, that does seem like a bit of a catch 22 sometimes trying to figure out how to do it. But the best case scenario is that they can get off of it or there are other, um, plant medicines such as ibogaine, right. That have been found to be really effective for detoxing. Correct. Um, people, do you know much about ibogaine? I do. Um, ibogaine is the one alkaloid in the full plant of iboga that gets isolated to use for basically opiate addiction. Um, iboga, the full plant is, uh, has psychospiritual components to it. And the ibogaine alkaloid, which they isolate out and use in certain clinics and some of them are in Mexico and Europe and there's a few in Canada, I believe. Um, they use that particular alkaloid to actually get rid of, get rid of the withdrawals from opiates and also rebalance the, the opiate receptors. So the withdrawal is gone after a day of the use, or it's usually a couple days, really. It's actually pretty extreme, um, but it's, it's a great medicine for opiate addiction. It's a, it's actually a miracle medicine. Yeah, no, it's, it seems like it's on the level of ayahuasca where it almost seems unbelievable when you talk about it. Yeah, it does. And you know, the, there's a lot of kind of rogue, uh, practitioners in the U S that are, I take my hat off to them cause they're, they're actually saving lives by having people do ibogaine or even iboga, the full plant to try to get off of heroin addiction and, and to try to, you know, get their life back under, you know, cause none of that stuff works traditionally, the historical, you know, Western medicine model for opiate addiction. It's like back in the day, get put on methadone currently get put on suboxone and just, you know, maintain as best you can without doing street drugs. And that's just no way to live. Yeah. And it's clearly not working because right now we're in the midst of the largest opiate epidemic in the United States history. Exactly. Yeah. I've had three friends, um, start taking Oxycontin and then, um, become full blown heroin addicts. Yeah. And that's usually the route because Oxycontin is expensive, um, on the street. And oftentimes if they got it prescribed to begin with, 
the docs eventually cut them off unless they're super shady doctors, which there's plenty of those out there. Right. I've talked to my fair share of them. You know, they don't like my phone call, by the way. Oh, I bet. <laughs> they don't like to hear from me at all when I call them. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, what happens, right, is that eventually they're forced to go get an opiate that's cheaper and more available. And that goes to heroin. And that's why there's this heroin epidemic because the oxys get cut off and they're just super expensive. Yeah, that's fucking disgusting. It's horrible. Um, so let's talk about the spiritual aspect of ayahuasca because, um, I really appreciate that we've been talking about this in a medical sense and, um, uh, shamans are a big part of this. Um, it's not recommended to take ayahuasca with a group of friends and without a guide. Exactly. Um, tell me about why that is important. Um, you're, you're saying that you have a man here who comes from a lineage of shaman, um, let's dig into that a little bit. Well, you know, anytime somebody's opening themselves up to change, whether it be energetic change, spiritual change, or really doing some soul searching, there's a lot to that. There's a lot that's attached to those emotions. And again, if it's back on trauma or addiction, there's a, almost an insidious sort of uh, vibe that can, that can permeate the soul uh, and, and lead people to be totally unhappy, actually being controlled by those historical events as well as the, the drug. And so when somebody's trying to get clean or trying to resolve emotion, what happens is they have an experience that is not always pleasant. Um, it's cleansing and it's, it's very therapeutic, but it's not necessarily fun. And what happens is there's a lot of energy and thoughts and emotions that kind of surface. And the way I like to say it often is it's like a opening a Pandora's box. Like you'd love to just look at one or two of those things, but once you start looking at them, they all kind of flood out because you know, our subconscious really has no need to hold on to um, a history of irrelevant trauma because it doesn't serve us. So it doesn't really want to stay within us. It wants to leave. So when you kind of start to look at it, people get scared and they have a lot of thoughts and a lot of memories and a lot of spiritual feelings that surface. And what happens in the, the ceremony space is that there's a lot of that energy kind of floating around. And if you're not trained on how to manage that energy and you're not stable as a shaman or as a health practitioner in that environment, it can get very crazy real quick. So the spiritual side is super important. And that's why these, uh, these shaman we work with who are experts in the field, they're trained and they're in that world pretty much anyway. And so they can recognize that spiritual sort of baggage that people bring to the table that, that has to leave them. And they know how to help that patient in the time there get rid of it. Well, yeah, I um, noticed from my experience when the shaman was as at the center of the room at the end of it, I noticed that I, I was thinking, I don't think that I could do this because he was having to manage all of these people who are physically laying down um, in a very comfortable setting. They had buckets. We all had buckets next to us if we needed to vomit, um, comfortable beds. Uh, eye masks. So it, it would seem that it's maybe a dozen people just laying in beds, but each one of us was going on this, this highly introspective journey. And I could see it being very easy as an untrained person to want to come in and say, like, okay, let me help you through your journey and then not be focusing on anyone else in the room. And by the end of it, um, I noticed the skill that it took for 
for this man to be there and and energetically be centered throughout this whole six-hour experience. Absolutely. It really takes a unique person. You know, it's a calling, I like to say, for people that are that are shaman. I mean, it's sometimes it runs in a family. It's a bloodline. Other times it's people just have that ability, and it's a special, special skill. You know, yeah. it's, it's like a surgeon. It's like a heart surgeon. They're, you know, not only are they skilled, but they also just have a steady hand, and they have the mind frame to be able to be under pressure and operate on a heart. So it's shaman are very similar to that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I would uh, equate uh, an ayahuasca experience sometimes to open heart surgery absolutely. on people and to, to really pick your surgeon, <laughs> you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. not, not just go into any random clinic. That's right. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of great places throughout the world that do offer uh, ayahuasca ceremonies that are wonderful, but there's a more so that are not so great and they're not so ethical and they're, they're not about the people they're about making money and they're about ego and they're, they're actually dangerous. So the beauty of, you know, having a facility that's managed in a, an appropriate medical way and also a spiritual way is uh, very inviting to people. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it. Um, man, it's such a fucking wild experience, man. It is. It is. You know, the great thing about it too, it's like, I always get people telling me, you know, well, I don't do drugs. I don't want to, I don't want to do ayahuasca. And I, I immediately say, well, it's not a drug. It's a medicine. I said, let's talk about what, what meds are you on? And of course they've got a long list. You know, they're on antidepressants. They're on a, they're sleeping pills. They're on uh, Xanax. I'm like, those are drugs. They're called medicine in the Western world, but those are actually, or they're made in a lab. Right. And those are drugs. Those are pharmaceutical drugs. And so this is a medicine that's completely natural. It's from the earth and it's medicinally beneficial. And it's actually, it, it cleans the soul as well as the mind. What did you say was the uh, success rate of patients who leave this facility? We have a self-reported success rate of 88% right now. Wow. Yeah. Right, so, and, what, and what does that success rate mean? Well, what happens is we, we call it, did you get your miracle is what we call it. And really what that means is, did you get your goal or your intention or did you realize what you came here for? And um, what happens throughout their stay is we're, we're talking to the people about, okay, well, you should expect this to happen. We're not saying it might happen or maybe it will, or if you're lucky, it will. We're saying it will happen here. You just need to pick what that goal is and get that miracle to happen through the plant medicine and the integration process. So when guests leave, they self-report on a survey that we have, did they receive their miracle? And 88% of them right now are telling us that yes, they do, which is mind blowing because it's been a week and they've realized so much about themselves and when they're leaving they're crying because they're so happy and they don't want to leave and this has like been a great experience for them right well it's it's fully inclusive it's not just um that you offer ayahuasca ceremonies it's also yoga breath work massage everything that could um enhance that success rate absolutely yep and just being in costa rica in general this is a blue zone really healthy part of the world to live the beach is nearby as we all know it's very therapeutic yeah yeah we both love the ocean (laughs) um ayahuasca in most countries is still considered a schedule one drug is that correct correct yes it is and you know it's it's usually viewed as the dmt component of the ayahuasca brew is what's the schedule one so ayahuasca itself just the vine by itself is not considered schedule one but the dmt component yes that is 
even though DMT is in most plants around exactly. the world, it's that boiling that and syn- and synthesizing the dimethyltryptamine is what is illegal. Yes, um, it's a lot. It's like that for a lot of things, like poppies, right? Aren't necessarily illegal, right? But the extraction of the of the opium is right and so once you have opium it's like that so it's the same sort of situation as the way they label it in yeah. the, most parts of the world well, uh, how did it become legal for you to um, use it uh, down here in Costa Rica just just like in uh, the United States um, the Native American reservations um, they have certain religious rites where they can use peyote and other uh, plant medicines on their on their land because it's a religious traditional history of them um, the entire country of Costa Rica is considered a, a native land to the Costa Rican government. So if there are indigenous tribes, which there are here in Costa Rica, that have a history of using certain medicinal plants that are native to Costa Rica, then those can be used uh, in a prescribed way um, by people that are not part of that tribe. So it's not like uh, it's not like the Santo Daime that have a religion and a church. It's not like that. It's it's more it's it's different. It's more like we have uh, the Ministry of Health's approval to use certain uh, plants in a way that's prescribed when it's uh, indigenous to this country. Gotcha. And are there any um, legal medical or legal facilities in the United States where ayahuasca can be prescribed? There is a few spots. They're not medical. They're okay. more religious. Okay. There's a one I heard of recently in Washington State, and there's a couple Santo. There's a lot of Santo Daime churches around that allow it, but those are religious based. And there's others in Florida. I've heard of other churches in different places. So there's a religious component to that. It's not a medical uh, environment. So this, we're the only medical licensed facility in the world. Yeah. The um, idea that people should not be allowed to have access to their own consciousness um, using this medicine is so insane to me. It is. Yeah, it's a scary thought that alcohol is legal, but all these plant medicines are illegal, right? Things that dumb people down, keep them enslaved and trapped are often legal, and things that uh, awaken the mind and help connect with self and others is is frowned upon by Western government. Yeah, and not only, I mean, obviously the the emotional um, components and psychological components lead to behavioral components, but um, speaking personally, um, my desire to eat healthy food in the days following this experience and not drink alcohol um, has been a really interesting um, outcome that I didn't expect. And and that I don't really have another desire to take ayahuasca soon. Yeah. I, I had a ton of very useful exper- um, insights, wrote them all down. I have a to-do list mm-hmm. of things that I want to incorporate back into my life. Um, but there's not that same feeling of like, oh man, I could really use another one right now. Exactly. Yeah. I'm the same way. I don't really do it that often anymore. I have access to it every single night and I, I rarely do it because I've gotten plenty of data and plenty of information from my previous journeys that I'm working on. Right. You know, and I'm trying to incorporate that in my life now. Yeah. And, the, uh, um, I do think this is important to talk about because uh, it does seem like this this magical potion that can heal you, and in many ways it does, but it seems to me that half of the work also comes after the experience. Absolutely. Um, how have you seen people um, incorporate the lessons best into their lives? It's really important to have a good, solid aftercare program. 
um, you know, a lot of breakthroughs can happen while they're here, but if they don't have an environment to go back to or a mind frame to go back to or a spiritual practice to continue when they get home, they're just going to fall right back into their same old pattern. So um, that was a, a big interest of ours from the start. And what we've been able to do over the last eight months is develop uh, an aftercare program called Rhythmia Life, which is access to all of our classes. I do a webinar twice a month. We have ayahuasca tinctures that are um, legal, that keep people in the zone of the plant medicine. They're super safe and anybody can take them. Um, whether or not they're on meds or not, that's fine. And um, What is the tincture? The tincture is um, a very diluted uh, homeopathic dose of ayahuasca. So there's no, de- there's no detectable ayahuasca in it. Um, homeopathic remedies, right, are diluted thousands of times down to basically the energy of the substance. So we have some of that that we, we sell to people and give to them to use to help them stay in the zone. But uh, it, it's super important that people prepare and have momentum going home to be able to focus on the goals that they realized here. Right. Give me an example of that, of someone coming in and, and realizing those goals. For example, um, we get a lot of people here that either went just recently went through a divorce or are thinking about going through a divorce. So there's one client in particular. Um, she was determined that, you know, her marriage was over. She wasn't connecting with her spouse anymore. Uh, she was upset. She was confused. She was in a different sort of spiritual zone than he was. Um, but they have, you know, everything in their life was great. Otherwise, you know, they didn't struggle with money and their kids were healthy and things were cool, but she wasn't happy in her marriage. And her goal was to get clarity, you know, on what should I do when I get home? Should I divorce or should I stick it out? What should I do? And, you know, she, when she first got here, the, the, what she was bringing up a lot was, you know, how his, behaviors and his lack of spirituality and these things that he was doing were what was causing the the issue. What she realized when she was here, right, is that it wasn't him at all. It was her. Right. And her her tolerance was low. Her um, expectations were not realistic. Um, And it was more really about her than it was anything else. So she was able to get some clarity, go home, continue her path of, uh, of working on herself by doing energy work and yoga and doing some types of therapies that were appropriate based on, you know, her desires and her marriage is great. Her marriage is super strong and her husband is like super happy and content and things are going really well. Wow. So there's, <laughs> so there's a lot of examples like that where people think like, well, my job, you know, I don't like my job. I'm, I hate what I'm doing. Um, I need a job change. They come here and they realize some people realize, yeah, they need a job change. But a lot of people realize like, no, I'm just not connecting with myself in my job. And they go home and they thrive in their current job and they didn't need a change. It was about their own outlook. Right. It's these little subtle um, chiropractic adjustments that can then release a ton of energy. Oh, my God, my back doesn't hurt anymore. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's human nature, I feel, especially in the West to look outward for why things are messed up. Right. And it's got to be my boss. It's got to be my spouse. It's got to be this neighborhood I'm living in. It's got to be this junky car I have. Right. And that's why I'm not happy. But none of that's real because you could change all those things, get a new husband, get a new house, get a new job, and you're still unhappy. So the reality is what's going on inside of me? What am I upset with myself about? And that's the key to all of this. And that's what we focus on. Yeah. um, And I think that for me, again, I'm always just speaking personally from my, my single experience. Um, 
uh, how easy it is to attach our identities to things that we do and then thinking like, oh, I, this is um, this isn't me anymore. I need to quit my job or I need to scrap that program. We do this a lot in um, the West, right, where there's there's one bad thing that a, a governmental program has going on. So we scrap the entire program or the whole company rather than looking at it in a more mindful way and just tweaking it a little bit, which then can change everything. Absolutely. Like I, I love the analogy of uh, Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. Right. With the Bucky ball. I'm having uh, his grandson on the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. He lives in Santa Cruz. Very cool. And, you know, the change, uh, according to Buckminster Fuller, right, the change in society is not going to come from scrapping the whole thing and starting over. It's coming from subtle adjustments, like you mentioned, in the system that can lead to further change within. And then so before you know it, the old system is brand new right? over time with these small adjustments. Yeah, yeah. One uh, one insight that I had that I, I really wasn't expecting was um, around my surfing actually, which um, I've had a very convoluted relationship with my whole life because I, I love it so much. I spend so much of my time chasing waves around the world. It really is a, a part of my identity. Um, but from that, I've also developed this this kind of distorted and just hateful relationship with it, too, of, the, of comparing myself to other surfers, not feeling good enough, wondering that if you know, my life after surfing all the time, like, will I, will I lose value in a, in a certain way? And I hadn't really articulated that to myself, but that feeling of not being enough was always present there. And I had this, um, this experience of just, of being in the ocean and being fully immersed in awe. And I had a vision of diving down and there was zero comparison and there was zero feeling of not being enough. And uh, it was this this moment of, of understanding that I don't need that anymore. And in, the, and in the past two days of going surfing, that's such fun surf sessions. I bet. I bet you are. And you're probably surfing it, better. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's, it's... Uh, the stress, it's, uh, the stress, with the stress gone, the, the, you well, can the stress is gone, and and yeah. it does. That's an example of just a small tweak, right? Absolutely. Whereas I and in the past, I have struggled with um, people being like, "Oh, you're the surfer, like, yeah, you should do another ocean story. That would be great." And I, I do love the ocean. I am a water person, but I've almost had an aversion to doing ocean stories for the last little while because I, I want to move past that identity, and I haven't been having a lot of fun surfing in the in the past couple years really like there have been great moments but um it hasn't been that that free and relaxed feeling that i was looking for yeah that makes sense yeah and that but and that's an exa- uh, an example of of using the medicine and and having an insight that i didn't really know was there but i did ask in in my um in intention and the, the purpose that i wrote in it was to have the insights come in a a kind way because mm-hmm. I, I, I was like I want this I want all the lessons to come in a kind and gentle way please That's and good. it really did and it was, yeah. it was uh, you can request that it's nice yeah I've had I've had a lot of clients with similar experiences there's a, a woman in particular that 
was a physical therapist and she was trying to buy buy out her partner and get a practice going and just there was so much stress on her from family history and self-worth and all this stuff and she just relaxed while she was here did the medicine a bunch of times you know three or four and finally got clarity that you know like she just needs to be happy and when she's happy everybody else is happy around her including her family yeah and her practice is thriving and she's happy in it and she's doing other alternative sort of holistic remedies at her physical therapy practice which is what she always wanted to do and just kind of opens up other avenues within what you're doing to bring clarity and just kind of groundedness, you know, to each person. I can tell that you get a lot of satisfaction out of helping people. Absolutely. I love it. I've been doing it my whole life. I'm the oldest of seven kids. I raised my brothers and sisters. I love doing it. I've uh, two kids myself, third on the way. And I just look at all these clients like they're, like they're my kids, you know? And I, I really thoroughly enjoy it because there's been, you know, there's been a lot of pain in, uh, not only my history of my family, but with the clients I've worked with, there's a lot of suicide. There's a lot of overdose. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pain. So when I see one of these guests, um, get their miracle and be happy, sometimes for the first time in their life, it's very rewarding. And and the beauty of it is it's nothing to do with me has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has to do with them only. What I love doing is providing an environment that's safe enough where they can do it. And that's the satisfaction I get is it. I'm glad that I was able to hold a space for these people to get what they need. So given that, uh, ayahuasca is still a schedule one drug in most places. Um, and for what do you see as the future moving forward? Um, so that more people can have access, um, to this. For now I see, um, people are going to have to go abroad to get it, um, like down here in Costa Rica, or they're going to have to join one of those religious organizations in, in the States. What I would hope to see happen is that, because uh, there, there is a push, you know, in certain groups to get it to be legal, um, lots of different plant medicines in the U.S., but, you know, of course, they're fighting big pharma and the FDA, which is not easy. Um, so in the near future, I don't see it being legal in the U.S., But I believe if the people um, become aware that this is an option for them and the fear that gets put around it is reduced because we know that um, alternative remedies by the AMA are often considered ridiculous and nonsensical and not. What's the AMA? The American Medical Association. So they'll they'll shut down, you know, in a big lobbying sort of effort, any sort of alternative remedies you know, that, that aren't part of their medical curriculum. Right. So, and they're very powerful, obviously. So, and how will that happen? Uh, how will they shut it down? Yeah. How will they well, shut it down? Well, they've kind of been doing it already. Just, you know, saying that you know, basically not funding research for it, not, um, advocating for it, uh, not saying that this is a, something we should look into, um, you know, all different healthcare agencies, the world health organization, um, different agencies that, that evaluate what, treatments are viable you know the the whole process of medical research is uh it's a nightmare um it's it's the the grants are awarded to elite um historically elite uh people and universities and in order to get funding you have to kind of stay within a parameter of uh, uh, peer-reviewed success and um, acceptability 
So when somebody comes out with, uh, you know, I want to, if an MD, PhD person wants to study ayahuasca or study plant medicine, they really have an uphill battle. There are some, some people trying this and have been for, for a couple decades in the U.S., particularly in Florida. There's a couple of people down there that are trying to do it. Um, you know, they're met with a ton of resistance. Um, it's really hard to, to have a clinical trial with this. Um, the good news, right, is that Johns Hopkins University has been doing some psilocybin research, and um, that's been super interesting. Even though it's been a little weird, we, we, had, we had a guest come here that was part of that study, and uh, he told me the circumstances surrounding what the clinical trial was like. It was pretty strange, but nonetheless, it's a step in the right direction. Can you talk at all about that? Well, you know, when, when people take mushrooms, they're usually out in nature, and they're uh, in a pleasant environment enjoying the experience. Uh, the clinical trial, that, that how I was explained, uh, was, you know, you're laying on a, on a bed in a patient room in a hospital with two or three people with clipboards, you know, standing over you. Oh my God. <laughs> sounds like the worst thing ever. It's a nightmare. Right. Well, there's this, um, uh, there's a lack of, um, there's a lack of, um, importance put on the intention, uh, it seems like in the Western medical world, right? Where it's, oh, you're, you're sad here, take this pill and it'll make you feel happy rather than, um, here, take something, but you really need to want it too, or you need to, you need to want to take this, or you need to be in the right setting to take this properly. Right. We don't really, um, put that kind of emphasis on it in the Western Correct. world. The, right? the, the problem that I see in the Western medical world, right, is that there's tons of liability at every turn. So if I'm a, if I'm a physician in the U S and I have a patient that needs, um, that has depression, severe depression, what I am trained to think right away is, okay, if this person kills themselves while they're under my care, I'm liable. If I don't give them the right medical uh, protocol or the right prescription protocol and this person's family sues me, the judge is going to say, did you follow the, the AMA protocol for this type of situation, which is already outlined from the medical um, protocols? And I'll say no. And then I'm liable. So there's a lot of liability that, that ties the hands of healthcare practitioners. So even when I was working with patients in, in LA, it's like if I wasn't referring to the right facilities and I wasn't um, putting people on psychiatric holds and if I wasn't doing the med management with the psychiatrist appropriately, then all of a sudden I was liable. And so it, it prevents me, the system itself prevents me and others from actually talking openly and frankly about these other treatments that are, that are there. And so, you know, the problem with healthcare, in my opinion, is that everybody's worried about getting sued. And so if they don't follow what's, what's recommended by the AMA and by these, the FDA, then they're in trouble. And so it just, it just shuts it all down from the practitioner's point of view. Right. And what's an example of, uh, not following protocol, taking a, a patient out into nature to do a psilocybin study. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be a great example. So l or let's say, you know, let's say I got a patient that's been you know going through all the different meds and psych unit and all the rest. And I say, you know what, you should probably go down. You should probably go to the Congo and go to Africa and take some Iboga, or you should go down to Peru and uh, you do an ayahuasca ceremony. If that patient reports me, I lose my license. Wow. So you can, if you're a medical practitioner, you can't even recommend that. Exactly. In the US. Exactly. Yep. 
Which is why <laughs> surfers like me are <laughs> talking about this, right? That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. You know, the, the breakthroughs that are going to come for, for the, the, the advancement of plant medicine, in my opinion, are not going to come from the traditional medical model or the physicians and psychologists and psychiatrists in that system because they're not able to talk about it. They can go rogue and they can break out, but usually that happens when they're about to retire and they don't care anymore and they've built such a huge reputation of being like, you know, credible that they just, they, they it, it won't hurt them if they do that. But you get a young physician, you get a young psychologist, their career is over in, yeah. in a matter of months. Yeah. And they'll, they'll lose their license. Yeah. And they're $80,000 in debt from medical school. They just, they just got a mortgage with a family. They want to make money. They don't want to get fired. It's, I, it's completely understandable, really. I don't, Absolutely. I think that with most people, it, with most physicians, it's not coming from nefarious intent. Uh, trying to not give people access but as you said it's the way the system is set up i agree you know and it's interesting because you know if if i was to if i was to speak at a lecture in the u.s about these plant medicines the the board of psychology could uh could get upset they could they could do something so that's why i feel like you know with another interesting statistic i'll mention this is that 25 percent of our guests are either physicians, nurses, or psychologists, or masters in social work that we see here. Wow, why it's is incredible. that? It's incredible, actually. So there is a glimmer of hope there. And what I see happening is the same thing that happened to me, which was I was super frustrated with the system I was in. I never really bought into it anyway. I always wanted to make a change, but nonetheless, I was my hands were tied right. every turn. And yeah, so, it's like a school teacher going into a public school system, and you you have your hands full with forty students, and you're not able to shape the hearts and minds in the in the same way that you wanted to. That's right. So what's nice is that there's other healthcare practitioners realizing this and wanting to experience it for themselves, so they can hopefully maybe nudge a patient down to do one of these ceremonies or at least speak about it in a, in a knowledgeable way. So there is some hope there, but I, I don't think the main shift in uh, medicinal plants like these be, being used legally, I don't think they're going to come from the healthcare uh, administrations. I think they're going to come from uh, grassroots uh, agencies and people that are, that can speak about it um, in an open way that are not licensed by any sort of uh, medical or psychological board. Right. Um, there is some progress happening with psilocybin, right? They, they just went into phase three trials recently. Correct. Can you tell me a, a bit about that? Yeah. Um, again, a lot of those studies are out of Johns Hopkins University. And so you know, for, for um, depression, uh, psilocybin is uh, really good and they're getting some great results. And I think, you know, I'm not sure what the, the basis of, you know, the funding is and like how they really pulled that off. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm actually been reading a lot about what they're doing there. And what I can, what I can see is that what happens with antidepressant medication in particular is that its effectiveness wears out. And, uh, you know, let's say you start off with Prozac and you take that for a couple years, then you got to switch over to you know, another generation of antidepressant. And the next thing you know, you've been through six, none of them work. And now what are you going to do? So they're, they're, they're constantly looking for alternative or other methods for, for depression. Again, it's a liability issue, I believe. And it's, it's just another route to try to improve those symptoms. So the great news is that 
I don't know how they pulled that off, but I'd love to figure it out. Yeah. But they were funded and they were received the, the, the legal liability or the legal uh, opportunity to actually treat, you know, use psilocybin to treat depression. So it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, and what does phase, what does phase three trials mean? That means, uh, well, phase one is usually just the, the study of it and, um, usually done with a control group and a, and a placebo group. Phase two is when it's uh, just it's just basically broader and there's more people involved. Uh, phase three is where it can start to be used in clinical practice and it can start to be used as something that like doctors can actually prescribe. So as it goes into that, again, it's controlled still. They're still part of a study. Like at UCLA, they would always have in the newspaper, come join this clinical trial and this study for whatever, right? So that would be a phase three where they're offering it to the public, but still in a controlled manner. Right. Yeah, a lot of studies have with uh, grad students, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I actually paid for a lot of my grad school by doing that. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, that's. Um, I was just reading a, a book called Sex at Dawn by a guy named Chris Ryan. He, he has a great podcast as well. Um, and he was talking about how one of the issues with a lot of the sexual research that people do is that they're with 25-year-olds, right? And um, a woman's sexuality is going to be completely different when she's 25 as opposed to when she's 45. But one of the issues is that there are these broad sweeping claims about women's sexuality but they just have a bunch of 25 year olds in there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's a selection bias based on the study, right? A statistical analysis of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why was the AMA set up in the way that it is so that there's so much liability? Do you think that that came from, from good intent so that there wasn't, there, there wouldn't be malpractice and then it just turned into this kind of, um, handcuff situation. Yeah. I believe it was intended to be, um, a, a good thing. Um, what, what happens, you know, <laughs> most of the public, they view doctors and psychologists and, and doctorate level people as like these amazing, sort of godlike people who are so smart. Oh yeah, there's all the studies there's all the studies of people putting on white coats and the trust levels yeah, that go up. Exactly. And if you've ever been to medical school, what it is is a bunch of memorization and it's a bunch of looking at a book to see what to do. Now, I'm not talking about surgeons and specialists. That's a whole different thing. That's an art. I'm talking about general practitioners, internal medicine. Now, there's great ones. There's amazing ones. My brother's a physician. There's great ones. But Memorizing millions of facts does not make you an empathic, logical thinking person. It makes you a good memorizer. And so what happens was is there's all these practitioners out there in the world, and I've seen them at the psychology level. There's a lot of nut job psychologists. There's tons of them. Most of them are crazy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> crazy in a fun way, I'll say, right? But they're crazy, a lot of them. Yeah. And so there needed to be a governing agency to kind of routine, like root, like to make something as a protocol that everybody could follow to keep all the stragglers in check. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some people on the autism spectrum. Definitely. You know, because they're amazing at memorizing things, but maybe don't have the empathy or don't have nutrition skills or, Correct. you know, so then that's where you end up with the situation that you have now where it's, oh, here, take a pill for this. Correct. That's what I memorized. That's right. And, you know, it's like the, the noble profession, right, of a physician you know, it used to be that way, in my opinion, where the physicians really cared about the patients. And I believe that they all start off caring very much. I believe they do. I'm also not saying that every physician is, is autistic, but 
<laughs> there's a fair share right. of them. There's a fair share. But what happens, right, is it is that they get into this field, they think that they're there to help people, and they realize they're not even with the patients more than a minute or two or less. And it's the nurses and the nurse practitioners that are with the patients, and they actually don't have any patient interaction. In order to succeed in private practice, you got to see 60, 70 people a day. How are you going to do that, like spending a half an hour with each? Is ain't going to happen. So I think they get frustrated, and I think they just say, all right, now I just have to make money because I have this private practice. I have all these equipments that I'm renting from the hospital and I, I'm just, my hands are tied. So they get into this position where it's not really about the patients anymore. It's about surviving in a career. Yeah. Um, wow. You, you have to rent the equipment. How does that work? Just depends on what specialty you're in. Give me an like, example. For example, my brother's a radiologist. Uh, he's a physician radiologist. Yeah. And so he doesn't own an MRI, right? But he rents it with his group from the hospital. Okay. Yeah. So, so big equipment, you usually have to rent it. Right. And there are a lot of costs um, Absolutely. that come with that. And then if you get sued, you're screwed. Totally. But if you have a huge uh, liability insurance, which they all do, then you're probably okay. Right. So, but it's expensive. That's a big part of why I didn't go into medicine is because I wanted to be an OBGYN and deliver babies. I was managing those OBGYN clinics. I, I loved the, the whole social cultural context of it all. And the liability insurance at that time was upwards of $300,000 a year. And I was like, I'm not interested in trying to make 400,000 a year so I can maybe have a hundred. It just wasn't, it wasn't making sense. Wow. Oh, I had no idea. There are a lot of costs associated Big with time it. costs for doctors, especially okay. in private practice. That's why a lot of them go into groups and a lot of them go into hospital groups. Mm. My brother's in a group that's affiliated with a hospital. So that's the way they can survive. Right. But if you want to, if you want to branch out and have your own private practice, it's really, really hard. That makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, so that you can all use the same equipment, that kind of thing. Is that, is that that's one of the main yeah. issues? And then you can also get insured as a group. Exactly. Okay. And you know, the interesting thing is that you would hope, right, that psychiatry Psychiatrists are the ones that are prescribing the psychotropic medication because they're the ones that are highly trained in it. That's not the case. Most of the meds that are psychotropic, that are for mental illness, are 85% of them are prescribed by non-psychiatrist doctors. So what happens is if I'm an internal medicine doc and I'm trying to survive in my practice and I'm seeing people with the flu and I'm seeing you know this and that, and I'm not getting enough patients, all of a sudden, you know, I'll start seeing people that have depression because I can, and I can write all the meds. I can still write scripts for antidepressants. I can write them for all the meds. Right. So I start seeing people that, that maybe aren't qualified for antidepressants. And I start over prescribing. And so a lot of the meds that are problematic are not even given by psychiatrists. They're given by general practitioners. How is that legal? Well, it, as a physician, again, part of the AMA is you can prescribe every, every medication except for the ones that are only in hospitals or Suboxone, which you have to get a special training on, and then you can prescribe it. And there's certain specialty meds that you right. need additional training on. What's Suboxone again? Suboxone is an opiate blocker for people that have opiate addiction. Okay. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm in a private practice and I want to gain patients, I'll start seeing people with mental health issues. Even if I have one rotation in my residency that was a couple weeks long on a psychiatric rotation. I'm not qualified to do it, but I can. That's part of the, again, part of the AMA. Right. And then I come to you and I say, I'm having suicidal thoughts. And you say, okay, here's a prescription for um, something. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And um, do let's say that I'm a physician. Do I make more money if I prescribe 
uh, medicine to you? Yes. And, and it used to be out of control back in the nineties. It was totally out of control. There was incentives and kickbacks and all kinds of special perks. If doctors prescribe certain medications, um, they crack down on that a bit. And so it's not quite as rampant, but definitely, um, the meds play a big role in what the doctor's protocols are. Again, it goes back to what's the the approved upon legal regimen for someone that has XYZ symptoms. And if they have these symptoms, these are the meds you're supposed to prescribe and these are the treatments you're supposed to prescribe. So the meds now have become part of the physician's repertoire for working with their clients. And how do I, how do they make more money? Is it that because a, um, a, company will go to you say your physician and and say we uh, think that this is a great new antidepressant um we would like you to prescribe it and they have a um a lobbyist or a representative come out and try and give it to you walk me through that process well, what, of how it really works well, the way it works now isn't quite as clear as that so it's, okay. it's actually better now okay. because the, me- the corporate practice of medicine is what that would fall into, okay. which is illegal. And so if I'm, a, if I'm a doctor prescribing Zoloft, I'm not getting a kickback from Zoloft. At least I'm not supposed to be. At least it's not anywhere on the books. Yeah. Um, if I get tickets to, tickets to the Laker game, you know, who's going to know that? It's, that's still illegal. So what happens is it's not so much now about trying to get the physicians to prescribe the Zoloft because they're going to get a kickback. It's more about I'm going to get my Zoloft into the protocol that's necessary for a liability situation. So when these doctors are going to court for being sued, did you give them Zoloft? And again, I'm just using that brand as an example. It's not so much that it's SSRIs. Okay. Is Zoloft a, uh, a brand? Yeah, that's okay. a brand. It's an antidepressant medication. Yeah. I know it's a medication, yeah. but is it, is it Pfizer that I'm not for, sure which one yeah, it is, okay. but yeah, it's one of the big pharmaceuticals. The big mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. So the, so the approach changed and it wasn't about trying to get the doctors to sell the meds or use the meds or prescribe them so they can get money. It was more about like, we're just going to make it. So this is the protocol. So now you have to do it. And if you don't, then if you go to court, then you didn't use what you're supposed to use and now you're in trouble. So, and if you're a company, how do you uh, make sure that you get Zoloft into um, the regiment? Lobbying, lobbying, big time lobbying. So, so a lobby, a lobbyist from the um, pharmaceutical company will go to um, it would it be a state representative or a, a federal representative? Both, both. Okay. There's there's different routes. And and who are the representatives that make those decisions? So you can lobby all kinds of places, right? It is you can you can make the you can suggest to the AMA that they recommend a certain protocol, and if the AMA is suddenly going to get a huge donation, that helps, right? And then if politicians and the FDA itself is getting lobbied to do the lobbying in Washington, then it's all kind of a big system. So it's not so much they've done a lot of work to try to kind of make it covert and not something that's like clearly seen how it happens but basically it's like what's the the best practices what is the evidence-based research showing for outcome measures for these certain meds with these certain circumstances and like oh look it's zoloft as an example so that's going to now be a protocol that we're going to say is the right way to use this medicine for that type of patient. And so then it becomes what's used normally and it becomes routine. Wait, wait, wait. so is that because um, the company that that creates Zoloft will, you say they will fund university research or? 
Um, I'm not sure if they're or allowed they're, to. Okay. I'm not sure if they're allowed to. It, it has to go. It gets it gets hidden through different sort. It's almost like gets laundered in a way. Right. Like the information gets laundered through different agencies, and it kind of comes around, and then all of a sudden it's a it's a policy. Okay. So it's hard to track exactly like what that is. I haven't been involved in like the the big pharma sort of you know, policies. Okay. You know, but but what happens right is that it would be it would be great to say it's it's clear cut like this right. That if I if I need to sell if I'm if I'm the owner of Zoloft, I want it to be used and how do I do it? Well, it's it's a matter of you have to get the AMA to understand that this is a, an appropriate med. You have to get the FDA to approve it. You have to get uh, the governments to the government boards, medical boards to use it and to say, see the research that shows it works. You know, there's a lot involved to it. But again, like like grant funding, like who gets the grants? Is it a random dude who has a really cool idea? Who's a who's a an associate professor at UCLA? Not likely. It's usually the the tenured professor who has forty years of experience who gets that grant money, even if their idea sucks. Who do they get the grant money from? It just depends on the funding source. So okay. there's private grants, there's government grants. So that's just an example, right? So okay. it it it's it's not easy to say like how it all happens. But basically, if I'm a huge pharma, if I'm Pfizer, and I'm coming out with meds. Well, I'm getting government funding for certain things to create. They're going to help bring, in theory, healthcare lower and to be more effective. And, you know, there's all these benign sort of you know, right. appropriate. Right. So it's, it's subsidies from tax dollars saying we have a depression issue in this country. We need to handle it. So we're going to allot this amount of funding for the next few years to solving depression. Absolutely. So then that that those those subsidies or that funding will, will go to a company like Pfizer um, Pfizer then will um, fund. So, so you say you, you don't know if they can fund university research Correct. directly, but Correct. Um, but there are a series of organizations that will give grants for certain types of research. Yeah, like like when I was at the OBGYN clinic, yeah. there was a Norplant study. When Norplant is uh, uh, an implant that goes in the arm of the women, it's a birth control, and there was a there was a study we were involved with. And it was to see how effective Norplant was, what were the, the demographics of the people that wanted it. And I, I thought at the time that it was part of just like what we had to do at UCLA. Come to find out is because we were being funded by the pharmaceutical company that makes Norplant. So it was all kind of like twisted in these weird sort of ways to get us to to give study, do a study on something that that was an option for our clients to have. We weren't supposed to push it, which we didn't, but it was something there, but it was a, it was like a, a cannibalistic sort of way to right. like look at data from a patient population that was seeking birth control. Right. And then you get it on the shelves. Exactly. Right? And then it's in, and then it's in that assortment of, of drugs that you could prescribe. Absolutely. Yep. That's how it works. And it, you say it used to be, um, much more overt. Right. I've heard yes. I've heard stories of pharmaceutical companies taking doctors out on trips to Hawaii, oh, yeah. going golfing. It was it was, it was a heyday back then. It was the heyday. Like people used to show up at UCLA with uh, big trays of food and like tickets on for cruises and go to Hawaii on a fishing trip and like all kinds of madness. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. It was and, crazy. and then you say, oh, well, uh this this new drug is definitely the best one yeah. to treat your I'll, I'll, your I'll order your birth control pills all day long right you know? yeah. yeah exactly yeah. or oxycotton exactly right yeah 
um, hasn't had any bad effects. Now that was then. that was so out of control that, that that it's not like that anymore. Yeah. yeah. So so what has happened to crack down on that? Is it is it the liability? Or, uh, or, well, or what is, what they happened? just they just stopped giving doctors kickbacks for prescribing meds. That's okay. just basically what happened. Okay. And did that happen uh, on? The uh, governmental level was it the the FDA that yeah. that w- there was pressure put on them to crack down absolutely on it? yep okay so now would you say that we're in a, a somewhat stagnant environment in the medical system in the United States where you said that they they crack down on the kickbacks which is good um, there's still major over over prescription for um, antidepressant drugs um, opiates all that all that kind of stuff but. Are we kind of in a gridlock situation now where um, practitioners can't even talk about or recommend um, a medicine like ayahuasca because they could get sued? um, And that's just the way the system is. Do you see any kind of shift happening? Well, you know, it's hard to say because unless there's a, a change of opinion from the FDA about these plant medicines, it's still going to be an illegal situation. The nice part, right, is that the psilocybin is kind of opening the door a bit for hopefully other medicines to be looked at. Right. You know, but time will tell. It's hard to it's hard to know. Okay. Um, and what do you so? But let's say psilocybin in the next few years does get through the door to be a um, a registered antidepressant uh, treatment. Um, then would it be that hopefully the conversations move forward to um, start opening up for um, a medicine like ayahuasca? Would that be would, the, would those be the next steps? I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out yeah. the the actionable next steps that could take place in the medical world. You know um, what what has what has to happen, right? Is that just like I mentioned the the environment where they're given the psilocybin to the patients at Johns Hopkins, right, is a very clinical environment, which is to be expected. So you have to kind of like take out the whole shamanistic thing and take out the spiritual component, which is unfortunate. And you have to make it more sterile and more clinical and more controlled. And so I'm not, I'm not against that. I think that that's gotta be the first couple steps. So, so in order to make ayahuasca more clinical, that's why I think being at Rhythmia here is is basically that that first step. That's what we're doing, but right. we're still keeping uh, the integrity of the spiritual component. Yeah, to get it to be legal mainstream, it's going to have to, in my opinion, lose that spiritual side. At least uh, the fanfare that goes around it. It has to become more, just more clinical. Right, but you would be for that if the, Absolutely. the option was there. Yes, because I feel that that's just like a path. Right. And that's just the first couple steps that are needed. Yeah. And, but it does seem like you down here at Rhythmia have a really good balance. When I came in, um, I was admitted and had to um, do a, a check-in or blood pressure, um, mm-hmm. suicidal thoughts. Medical or, history. Medical history. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I was looking for. Um, and But then during the ceremony, as I said, there was a shaman present. That's right. Okay. Yeah, and, and the shaman, it's great because we learn from the shaman and the shaman learned from us. So we're, there's a reciprocal sort of educational back and forth with us and them. And we've had a, we found a really great balance where in traditional ceremonies, if somebody's having a little bit of an issue, like they're either scared or something's going wrong, the last thing they would ever do is bring in somebody that's not on ayahuasca, that's a medical person to look at anything. They would just handle it. And here we've made a nice balance where if there is something happening, 
the medical team is there immediately and it's part of the process and it's all good. And so there's a very nice balance that yeah. happens here. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is so helpful for people who maybe have a problem with the, the woo woo spiritual side of, Oh, I'm going to go down into the jungle and the Amazon and use this medicine, which I think would be fucking awesome would to be, try out. Right? But, yeah, I, totally. but, but I get that there's that barrier to entry yeah. for a lot of people. We, um, we wanted to have a place where like my parents would come to, right. you know, my parents aren't going to go to the Amazon up a river, even though I would love to, my background's in anthropology as my undergrad. Yeah. I think it's amazing, but that's not palatable to most people. Right. Have you uh, gone into the Amazon on any of those experiences? I haven't. I'm looking too soon, though. I'm looking to go to Colombia pretty soon here. Nice. Yeah. What's drawing you to that? That's where the tide is in his, in his group, his family. So they do often ceremonies there, and they, they make the medicine there a lot, and it's just a really cool experience. So I'm looking forward to doing that in the near future. Yeah. Have you personally um, shifted any uh, beliefs around spirituality since you've used uh, the medicine? Absolutely. I have. Um, I was raised in a very traditional, uh, Christian, uh, family, which has really been positive for me and helped me have some good values and family and things that are important. Um, but it was also rigid in the sense of like, there's kind of one way to do things. And I've been able to see that there's multiple ways to do things and they're all very positive. And my own spirituality has gotten stronger here. It hasn't, it hasn't made me negate the way I was raised or, or deny my religious background at all. I feel that it's made it stronger. Um, I just understand more is the way I look at it. So when I, when I go visit home in LA and if I go to church with my family, um, it's, it's a pleasant experience. Whereas before it was kind of like grating on my nerves most of the time. Cause I just didn't feel like I connected to any of it. Right. You know, but now I feel like I can understand it better. And, and, and I don't look at the other people in the church like, Oh, well, you guys are, don't know what's going on. I know so much more like that's so counterproductive. I look at it like, no, I, I have a different understanding that's appropriate for me. Right. Have you read a book called waking up by Sam Harris? I haven't. Have you ever heard of it? I have heard of it. It's, it's really good. I just finished it the other day. Um, and it, it was ringing so true to me as I was down here on, on this trip because uh, he is an atheist um, and he has a lot of problems with the dogma of, of religion, um, but also understands and his belief is that it doesn't just end with our body. Like we are more than our physical meat machines. Um, and... I think that ayahuasca is really blows your, your mind open. Um, when yes, you, when you meet your soul, yeah. um, and I, but that doesn't necessarily mean to me that, uh, Jesus Christ is real and this is the only way of the Lord and I'm shifting my religion. Uh, I had a, a guy on my podcast a number of episodes ago named, uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman. He wrote the book, the psychedelic explorers guide. And he said he, uh, he had two women come in after they had psychedelic experiences one of them uh, realized that her religion was a farce. The other realized that her relig religion was more important than ever. Same religion. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's just our, our relationship so to it. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We see that a lot here too. Very similar. Yeah. Um, shit, man. Uh, really enjoy this conversation. Yeah. It's a good one. Anything else that uh, you want to touch on? We hit most of the issues. Yeah. I think we hit pretty much everything. I'm just excited to be a part of this change for people down here and Hopefully we're breaking new ground as far as, you know, medical treatments go and plant medicine. Yeah. We're help. We're, it's the funny thing, right? Is that none of this is new. This is ancient wisdom. Right. Ancient. And we're just 
looking at it again as a Western society to try to get back to our roots because things are, as we know, are out of control right now in the world. And it's just like going on a destructive path. We wanted to have a place that could hopefully help shift that into a more aware, conscious environment, just changing one person at a time and getting them to be plugged into themselves. Because if you're plugged into yourself, you're going to be plugged into others and you're going to have tons of empathy. And if you have empathy, you're not going to want to harm or hurt anybody, including yourself. And so that's where we think real change comes from. Still with us? Quite an episode, eh? Hey, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you like this podcast, please take two minutes, give it a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps me out, helps other people find the show. And if you're feeling extra generous today, head over to my website, kyle.surf, where you can donate to the podcast. Or you can head over there and give me feedback on the show, recommend new guests, or just say hello. I love hearing from all of you. All right. Uh, Keep an eye out for the episodes with Jerry and Nicole in the coming days. And until then, get outside, give someone a high five, get in the ocean, and I'll see you soon. Have a fantastic day.